across the UK, Overnights with Martin Kellner. There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico There you are, there it is, uh, Long John Baldry and, uh, and Mexico. A lot of you think, oh, I was waiting for that to go to bed now. Um, but uh, there he was. But don't, because we've got some uh, fascinating uh, stuff now from uh, John Bonfilio, who joins us from Mexico. Uh, John, uh, very good evening to you. Good evening. So, uh, end of an era, very much the end of an era, with uh, Raul Castro uh, resigning as the uh, Cuban Communist Party leader. Uh, and that's six decades that Cuba has had uh, a Castro in charge. Absolutely right. Very much, in some ways, very much breaking news because this has just hit the news desks over the course of the last few hours. But in, in another sense, really not breaking news at all because Raul Castro, even though he was the younger brother, not by much, was 89 years old or is 89 years old. And he he signposted two or three years ago that he was going to resign this year anyway. So it was kind of widely expected. But for sure, the historical significance of this is, you know, is 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 really important, because, as you say, since night since the revolution in 1959, this is now the first time in Cuba for 62 years that there has not been a Castro as as head of state on the island. And uh, they're, they're, they've got the Congress on at the moment, the, the uh, party Congress. Uh, he's saying that uh, he's handing over the leadership to a younger generation full of passion and anti-imperialist spirit. So it doesn't signal any sort of change of direction for Cuba. No, not, not really, not, 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 not at all. I mean, the Cuban project, I think, is really interesting because I think from outside we, we look at it and even when we see or read press, about the Cuban project, we continually think that it's a project that's bound to to crumble, to to come to an If you speak to people, most people on the ground in the streets of Havana or Trinidad or Cienfuegos, the vast majority majority of them do actually believe in the Cuban project. They do believe in the in the fraternity of peoples on the island, in high rates of, of literacy, in um, incredible rates of of education and healthcare and so on. And they recognise they're not blind to what's going on in different parts of the world, but they also see the deficiencies in the, in the broad capitalist model. Is everything rosy in Cuba? Has everything always been rosy in Cuba? Absolutely not. Is there um, state-sponsored oppression of dissidents? Very much so. Are, are there political prisoners in prison in in Cuba? Yes, um, definitely. So I'm not saying that it's you know it's 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 a finest example of a of a, of a progressive state that that there is. But by and large, the people who are still in Cuba, the vast majority of those people, do really fundamentally believe in the project as it always has been as a parallel structure to what much of the rest of the world has in play. Yeah, or well, of course they, they lose a lot of people. Uh, obviously, some of the best and brightest and some of the young people um, end up in Miami, don't they? That's uh, That must be a problem for, for Cuba, the fact that they are, uh, we used to call them in, in Britain, we used to call it the brain drain, that um, a lot of their young people do disappear to America. 
Yeah, they do. And, and that is, in many ways, Cuba's biggest problem, is that over a very short stretch of water, because it's really not very far at all between uh, Florida and Cuba, and, and really one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is just because the waters are dangerous, not because it's a, you know, a long stretch that people have to traverse, but because all of the dissidents and all of the, 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 the counter-revolutionaries, if you like, head over to Miami, and that's where their, their base is. And Miami in Florida, as we know, is a swing state in the U.S. election. So there's, there's an exponential power that the, that the Cuban diaspora has in Florida, uh, and that provides a hell of a lot of pressure in a U.S. national sense to then um, generate a lot of opposition to, uh, to the Cuban project, if, if you like. So uh, it's, it's definitely one of those situations which, because Cuba, I mean, it is, it is an island, but it's not that big of an island. Geopolitically, is it important? Not really. And again, if you look at the, the context in Miami, there's not that many Cubans there. I mean, there are quite a few, but, but it's not as though it's half of, half of Florida or anything like that. So it's one of those situations that because there's such conflict between those two groups of people and because it has geopolitical implications is why it hits the news all the time. But in a, in a day to day context, it really punches way above its weight in terms of what actually goes on on a day to day basis there. Yeah, and we'll find out presumably in uh, a week or so uh, who the new leader of Cuba is. Well, I suspect we already know because it's unlikely that the Communist Party, yeah. the, the single state run party that's allowed to operate in Cuba is going to spring any surprises. So the current president, Miguel Díaz-Canel, is likely to then take on the role of Communist Party leader. It's one of those peculiar things that, that the president runs the day-to-day -day affairs and then the Communist Party leader um, actually has de facto control over everything and, and planning. So it, it might seem a little surprising that the president has another step up um, to go. But, but for sure, communist you know, first secretary of the Communist Party is is where it's likely that um, this guy who's been in uh, he's been president since 2018, Miguel Díaz-Canel, is going to step up to, and he's signified, uh, essentially stated that everything continues the same, that the, that the communist project uh, continues on, that nothing much is going to change, notwithstanding the island is in something of a crisis because of COVID and because of the economic mm. crisis that that has, has brought about. So there is, for the first time, really since the revolution, a mass economic liberal liberalisation that's taking place. But that's not because Castro is stepping down. That's because the economics of the island absolutely need it. OK, um, now, uh, Brazil again, and uh, I think as you pointed out in an email to me, I have talked quite a lot about Brazil and, uh, uh, and the COVID crisis. But in the midst of all that, there's a, a new statue of uh, Christ being built in Brazil, which is going to be taller than the, uh, than the tourist attraction everybody who goes to Rio goes to, which is the Christ the Redeemer statue. This one's going to be taller than that. It is. I'm surprised, Martin, that we've not covered Christ statues before on your program. <laughs> yes. Essentially, it's one of those uh, one of those professional um, issues that uh, essentially if you cover Latin America for any length of time, you're going to be talking about a Christ statue uh, here or there. You're going to be talking about height. You're going to be talking about width. You're going to be talking. And this is crucial. Does it include the plinth? Does it not include the plinth? Um, <laughs> but as everyone and it's, it's a very, very competitive space, because as everyone knows, the bigger your Jesus you know that gets you kudos um yeah. the fundamental the fundamental detail of this is in the southern city of encantado this new christ statue is going to be 43 meters high including the plinth if you are wondering yeah. 36 yeah. 36 meters across from hand to hand and my favorite uh, uh design quirk of this one is that there's gonna it's going to provide a lift to a viewpoint in the in a chest cavity of the 
of the Christ. Um, as you say, Christ the Redeemer in Rio is uh, 38 meters. This one, Christ the Protector, is 43 meters. And there are only, only two other Christs. I've forgotten, completely forgotten where, uh, where the other one is. Um, I can't help you but, with that. Uh, I did, I did <laughs> notice at the time. But, yeah. Sorry. Um, but these are only Christ statues, of course. We're not going to get involved in, you know, if we start looking at statues of the Virgin Mary, then that's a whole different um, kettle Those, of religious yeah. fish that we would so, get uh, Yes, Encantado, where this new 43-metre-high uh, Christ the Protector uh, is going to be. Is that a tourist place? I've been to Rio, but that was the only place I've been to in Brazil. Uh, I just wondered if uh, Encantado w- was uh, a tourist place as well, and this was, you know, a bit of a tourist war between the two. It, it isn't, but it is a way of generating income, absolutely. So partly for international, I mean, not now, but, you know, at some point in the future for international tourists, but um, but definitely just even gathering the devoted and the flock to come and uh, and witness these things. I mean, th- there is a big, big, you know, when, when the Pope comes to Mexico, millions of people attend, literally millions of people attend yeah. his presence. So, and of course, you know, there is economic boost that follows people in presence. So it's, I mean, to some extent, it, it is a religious homage, uh, um, in the sense of the, the construction yeah. and what's being made there, but behind it is, is a drive to bring economy to to a local context. Yeah, okay. Um, now, just on a sporting point, uh, finally, um, there's been some sort of uh, study or survey done uh, on uh, red cards, and it seems that uh, uh, in your part of the world, uh, more footballers get, to, I mean, not necessarily playing in your part, but playing all over the world, get more um, red cards than players from other continents. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite damning because whichever way you look at these statistics, it's it's damning across both South American, Central and South American leagues, but also Central and South American players. So the stats essentially are that in, in, in Central and South America, the leagues have the most red cards um, globally. The second one is that um, Central and South American players playing internationally also receive the most cards and red cards internationally. And then if you continue to break down the stats, if you look at World Cup teams with most reds, the top three are Brazil, Uruguay and Argentina. And if you look at the top three with most cards full stop, you've got Bolivia, Guatemala, Uruguay. So no other continent makes it anywhere close to this. And the, the top three most reds is Uruguay, Bolivia and El Salvador. If you look at the, mo- at the cards per game compared between, say, Uruguay and England, England has 0.12 uh, red cards per game. So on average, one in every nine games in, in the English Premier League will have a will have a red card. But in Uruguay, one in every two games, so 0.5 uh, games has a has a red card there. And this study has tried to look at why there is this this huge discrepancy in the number of cards issued, uh, both on the continent, but also to uh, Latin American players internationally everywhere. And it's gone into painstaking detail in terms of trying to, um, to relate the footballing culture to um, to various uh, infrastructural, socio-economic mm. issues across across the continent, but essentially it's drawn a blank because, really interestingly, it's only the men's game. If you look at the women's game in Latin America, it's completely different and it's not remotely at the bottom of these statistics at all. So it actually seems as though it's not linked to anything at all, except for the evolution of a footballing culture, which mm. uh, which has led to essentially, you know, a fair bit of foul play and, and cheating across the 
um, across the continental leagues and in the culture of its players. Yeah, I mean, you look at it and you would just say uh, it's a macho culture, basically, uh, which is, I suppose it conforms a bit to um, racial stereotypes, doesn't it? We don't want to do that, but but it does um, because we, you know, the hot blooded uh, Latin Americans is what, you, you know, is, is your first thought when you see these statistics. Totally. That's the that's the the primary conclusion that a lot of people reach with this. But then there's been a number of researchers actually that try to look behind the the statistics and they've actually said that for example you know most people that actually uh, end up playing in, in professional football leagues in, in Latin America actually start out on a you know, on a dirt track or on a street and so on yeah, yeah. and so their evolution is actually not to do with sport but it's actually to do with surviving on a street and, and yeah. at that point where there's no referee and there's no rules and so on you basically learn uh, in order to survive you have to stay ahead of the game and you have to you have to be successful. And so that means you win by any means possible. And that yeah. inevitably then ends up translating itself onto the professional football pitch years down the line. Indeed it does. Uh, John, uh, thank you ever so much as always. Uh, as it is the end of the uh, Castro regime in uh, Cuba, we thought we'd uh, finish, uh, but yes, <laughs> with a little tribute to the, to the country by the, uh, by the Gibson brothers. Uh, John, we'll uh, talk again next week if that's okay. Take care. Have a good week. Yes, and you too. Enjoy the music. <laughs>